0: With Uber Reserve, good things come to those who plan ahead. Family vacay? Reserve your ride as soon as you book your flights. To all the planners, now you can reserve your Uber ride up to 90 days in advance. See Uber app for details.
1: From BBC Science Focus magazine, this is Instant Genius, a bike-sized masterclass in podcast form. I'm Sarah Rigby, online staff writer at sciencefocus.com. I'm talking to Dr. Brenna Hassett, an anthropologist and archaeologist at University College London and author of Growing Up Human. In this episode, she explains just how weird human childhood is compared to the animal kingdom. So just to start, could you please give us a brief explanation of what your book is about?
0: So I have written a book, Growing Up Human, The Evolution of Childhood, which is very much about the evolution of an incredibly strange species that has done some incredibly strange things, all of which are evolutionary adaptations, choices that our ancestors have made down the line. And these choices have led to us having an extraordinary long time spent as children. So
1: Let's start just before the story of childhood. Let's start with how we choose our partners in the first place. So we often say that humans are monogamous, but is
0: that, is that really the case? The way I like to think about childhood is that essentially childhood is a period when you're investing in the next generation. And the whole book is essentially a story of how we make that investment and how that investment sort of gets handed down. What humans have done is basically given ourselves lots of extra time to make lots of extra investment. And that actually starts even before you get a baby, um, which is remarkably strange. So one of the things that humans appear to have done is gone for a style of mate choice that almost no other animal does. So it's something like 90% of the animal kingdom have looked at monogamy or pair bonding, you know, one one partner for the rest of life, and gone, no, that's not for us, thanks, absolutely not, except for birds. Birds are very, very into monogamy. And it's only about 5% of mammals have gone, yes, we will definitely settle with the one. Primates, however, have gone over the odds. About 15% of them chosen what turns out to be an incredibly rare form of mate choice. And humans, despite what you may think from reality television or tabloid newspapers, are actually pretty committed to pair bonds. So we we count as a monogamous species, even though monogamy may not always be what you think it is. Um, I think there's a little bit in the book about um, extra pair paternity, which actually humans are much better at than something as sneaky as like a mouse lemur. So, you know, important to remember. But monogamy is essentially something that seems to have gotten us help down the line. Having a pair in primate species seems to be a really important part of how you get an extra investor, even before sort of you have a baby to invest in. One of the things that seems to happen in primates who have pairs is they have dads. They have dads that, for instance, carry the baby. Some of them for years. Marmosets, very good at dad carrying. This is like, you know, their number one contribution. And it's, um, it may be that that's actually a really important evolutionary contribution.
1: So you said that in primates, it's about 15% of species that are monogamous, whereas in birds, it's about 90%. So why are we so different from so many of our closest relatives?
0: Well, that that is a very good question. So I think one of the ideas... Is that monogamy has a couple different rationales. People used to say, well, if you have a pair, then the male of the pair, or the small gamete haver, if you will, um, if you think of um, egg and sperm as small and large gametes, that's how biologists like to refer to people. So the small gamete, gamete haver knows that. partner is, you know, that those kids are theirs and they won't be tempted towards infanticide. And so lots of people have theorized that we must have had lots of, like other primate species do, when a new male comes in, they actually kill all of the babies so that the females will go back to being ready to have more babies, which will be their genetic material. So people have theorized that that's in the human sort of ancestral condition, but we do see a lot of primates that don't have infanticide. The one, the one problem with this theory is it really supposes that male monkeys know what paternity is. And that's kind of a, a big cognitive leap when you consider, again, thinking of reality TV, that not all people seem to understand this. So, um, so we're not too sure that the theory is accurate. There are other theories, um, essentially, that, you know, the contribution to the next generation, having that dad around for carrying, for contributing to infant care, is really, really useful. And there's also ideas that females who roam, females who travel a lot, need to be pair-bonded because otherwise the males can't find them and nothing nothing happens. So it could be a mix of all sorts of evolutionary prompts, but it does seem pretty certain that that is what we've ended up with.
1: And so when when two humans are kind of monogamously together, usually, and then they're getting ready to have a baby. Humans, we can get pregnant all year round. Why, why don't humans have a mating season like other species?
0: Well, that's a really interesting question. So a lot of species opt to have their kids either once a year or, um, you know, if they're a fast reproducing species, a couple times a year, um, when, you know, they know that food is around. So a lot of primates are seasonal breeders and will pick um, the time when their kids are most... Annoying slash dependent um, for when there's the most food. So fruit season, for instance, if you're a lemur in Madagascar, then fruit season is short and special, and you need to have your kid when there's the most fruit available. Humans actually weirdly are seasonal breeders. So for anyone who's ever like uh, looked around a classroom and wondered why they have to share their birthday with so many other children, there is actually a reason for that. Um, there's a reason there are so many Leos and Virgos in the world. Humans have a little tiny residual seasonal breeding effect. Of course, we can control our food support you know, sources far better than a lemur, but when it comes to the things that signal seasonal changes like light, those change with latitude. And we can actually see that as latitude changes, we have a stronger and stronger effect of seasonal breeding. So the farther north or the farther south you get, the bigger impact on, whatever, human breeding season. But of course, humans do something else besides stare at the sun and wait for seasonal signals to have babies. They have cultural practices, and that is, you know, one of the major drivers of all of our evolutionary things, is essentially that we have this extra tool to drive evolution. And in uh, our case, the New Year's, Christmas, midwinter holiday season for humans um, seems quite frequently to trump. any seasonal considerations.
1: And in humans, it seems more so than any other species, really, we have a lot of difficulty with pregnancy and giving birth. So why, why do humans have such a hard time giving birth?
0: That one is definitely a sort of evolutionary anthropology cliffhanger. So that's one of the major questions that I think people are still arguing about. For a long time, we decided we knew. For a long time, we decided that human birth was a problem because we had tried to do too many things evolutionarily. We tried to walk upright, which required a nice, stable pelvis. And that had to be a certain shape and size. But we also wanted big brains, which required that the baby that would come out of this pelvis also be a certain size, and that size is large. So when you look at the size of a baby head versus a mother pelvis, in most primates, there's plenty of room. Not so in humans. In humans, that's a very tight fit, and we have to actually perform a kind of you know, like twist, like Tom Daly on a diving board twist, just to get out alive. And that's, that's you know, that's a lot to ask. So for a long time, we called this the obstetric dilemma. And we decided that this was just the price we paid for our lifestyle. However, it turns out we're not the only primates that make this twist. Um, now that we have much better sort of imaging capacity and we can actually see these things, especially in captive animals, chimpanzees do it too. Chimpanzees have plenty of room to... Turn a baby, and uh, to get a, a baby on. However, they still turn. They still make this little twist. And so we're we're actually probably not looking at quite the same restraining factors. And one of the issues might actually be how much we invest in kids when they're in utero. So you know, the whole book is about investment. And one of the things we really, really do is we have to pump that little baby full of calories straight through. When we're pregnant, it's just an amazing calorie suck. Not as much as you thought. You can't actually eat for two, apparently. That's folk wisdom, which is unfortunate. But you do actually need to put calories into the baby. And our reproductive system basically allows our babies to draw so much nutrition from us that it triggers problems that other animals don't even have. So things like preeclampsia, gestational diabetes, these are conditions that actually kill us other animals don't get them. I think uh, guinea pigs do and um, one or two dogs. But, I mean, this is these are incredibly rare conditions that, you know, are not... They seem like an adaptive dead end. You know, if reproduction is the key to the species reproducing. You don't really want to hit a, a door there. But apparently we think it's worth it because we want to invest in our babies so much that we grow them very, very big. And we have the capacity to basically make them hugely big, so much so that it is a problem when they're trying to come out.
1: And then once our babies do come out, they are so dependent on their parents for so long. So why does it take them so long to be able to do anything for themselves?
0: This is, this is a sort of fascinating... So there are um, two types of animals that you can be, sort of in evolutionary terms, biological terms. One is altricial which is the helpless, cute little, think of a you know, a kitten born with the eyes and ears shut, stumbling around. And one is precocial, so you could think of, like, a giraffe, which, you know, pretty much ready to run in, you know, the first hours. Or something like a spider, a little spiderling, is basically just a mini spider ready to go seconds after hatching. And we are firmly in the altricial category. We are useless, and we are more useless than even our other primate relatives. So other primates, they basically are usually born, even the ones who um, aren't born so ready. So a lot of the great apes aren't great shakes at walking or moving around, but most of them can at least cling. And if you have ever held a newborn human child, They cannot cling. They cannot lift their neck. Their neck is a problem. You know, and we are incredibly useless. And this may, again, be because we spend so much time investing in utero, but we can't really get them to the size we want because we spend all of our time, instead of making them, growing them so that their muscles and everything are competent and their skeletons are a little bit more finished and everything's a little bit more done, we put our money down, on really expensive brain tissue. So all those calories we're pumping into our kids, they go to building brains, not stronger babies.
1: And you said that human babies, they're rubbish at gripping things. But, you know, even though we're not, we don't cling to our mother's fur anymore. Is that why babies have the instinct to grab stuff?
0: I'm not actually sure. That's a fascinating question. I think there are a couple, there are a couple things that are left over in almost all mammals that we all have. And there's a couple um, reflexes that babies have that are, are just locked in motor wise, and they actually lose them after several months. So things like you've ever seen a small child lock their legs when the, both of their feet are supported, you know, that's a very strange <laughs> muscle response. But it's not because, you know, we were originally able to stand. It's just that's some great legacy we've got left over.
1: And so human childhood, well, we kind of, it depends on our cultures, but we often think of it as lasting until we're about 18 years old, which is such a long time, isn't it? Are there any other species that have their childhood as a longer fraction of their life than us?
0: I think you'd be hard-pressed to find one, and I think that's one of the things that's so unique about humans is we have a childhood that's sort of similar in length to something like a bowhead whale. Bowhead whales, however, live several hundred years. We know this because someone actually found a bowhead whale in the 2000s that still had a harpoon from the 1800s stuck in it, it had obviously gotten attempted whaled, or however you phrase that. And um, so we—I mean, it's very hard to study whales, especially an animal that outlives you. But I mean, but bowhead whales—it um, takes about twenty-five years for them to get to their full kind of bowhead whale competency. And there's actually parts of a human skeleton that don't finish and form their final kind of shape until you're almost thirty. Most of your skeleton is sort of done-ish around 20-ish later for boys. Boys are always behind. But, uh, I mean, we are basically living like we are a species that lives for hundreds of years, but we're not. We've just had this, we've decided to put all of our money down on this huge, long reproductive investment phase.
1: Right. And what parts of the human body is it that, that keep growing or keep changing until we're about 30?
0: That is actually, that is the medial end of your um, clavicle. So your collarbones, where they meet um, your sort of chest plate bone, is actually your sternum. Uh, All of your bones have basically end caps. So they start off as like little sticks, all the ones that sort of... And those little end caps don't really fuse on. So if you happen to be like me, an anthropologist, whose bread and butter is looking at the skeletons of very dead things, you um, get used to the idea that um, you can look at these bones and work out what stage of growth they're in just from the appearance of the actual bone. So obviously, things like size, people might imagine you could tell the bones of a kid from an adult. But especially for things like when we get to species where we don't know what size the adults would have been, those are the clues that we use in paleoanthropology to actually reconstruct how something grows.
1: Right, I see. Wow, okay. And why do we lose our teeth? (laughs)
0: <laughs> this is i love this question someone actually um one of my students uh, about a billion years ago asked me this question and it was such a perfect question because it's such a big answer and such a tiny one so the tiny one is because we haven't got room for our full set of teeth when we're babies we're too small and our teeth wouldn't fit so we have a small set and a big set and then the big set is a super fascinating answer is that basically mammals have two sets because we grow fantastically and we have these teeth that are they're incredible sort of evolutionary design to get us the nutrition we need when we need it so your teeth actually start they're they're growing from in utero even your adult teeth the very tippy tops of your um, front teeth will have been growing while you were still a baby in the womb which is very interesting if you're a dental anthropologist (laughs) but the reason why you actually have two sets of teeth fairly simplistically, is that when you are small, you really cannot fit the full adult set that you need in order to get the nutrition to run a full-size human body. Now you probably can, given sort of instant noodles.
1: (laughs) So when we talk about raising children, uh, we often kind of think of the kind of two-parent unit. And this is very cultural, but we usually just talk about the children just being raised by those two parents. But then also we, we talk about the phrase, uh, you know, it takes a village. Did we evolve to be raised by just two parents, two monogamous parents, or did we evolve to be raised by, you know, a large group of adults?
0: I think that's a very interesting question. I think also there's... There's something that we do when we ask whether we evolve to do something, which is to assume that there's sort of one correct way. And I think it's really important to notice that, um, you know, as modern people, we have an idea of evolution, which says, OK, well, evolution is pointing us towards something. And once we get to that something, it's perfect. It's done. That's the evolutionary solution. And of course, that's not true, because the only way for evolution to stop is if you're all dead. And that is not a great strategy. So obviously evolution has to change and it means that what we do evolutionarily has to change as well. So I know that um, people get very sort of bullied as parents. Um, about doing evolutionarily correct things, you know, whether they're feeding all natural foods or doing carrying, or, you know, I, I don't think anyone needs to beat themselves up because the store is out of period mammoth. Uh, I think that's, you know, we can we can relax on that. So the question of the sort of family units that we're evolved to be in, I think, changes very much with our societies. What we, what we can say, no matter who's doing the investing is that we have evolved to get as many people as possible involved in the investing, whether that's males, females, aunties, uncles, village, whoever it is. Human babies are out there looking for investment. And one of the things we seem to do is to actually breastfeed slightly for for less time proportionately than other great apes. So, um, there's, there's quite a lot of debate in sort of uh, many modern parenting circles about what's an appropriate time to breastfeed. We sort of think that two to four years is about the human maximum. That's, that's the most we know of for most societies throughout history and probably prehistory as well. Uh, but something like an orangutan, seven or eight years. So, even though we're ish the same size and almost live the same amount of time we actually take that infancy period where we're just with mom and we cut that a little bit short but we still have this huge long childhood which is a great time for us to make friends and influence people (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to convince our, our large friendly societies to invest in us as kids, to, to learn, to play and to, to get all of the benefit in the book, I call it social capital from our societies because human babies, they, they need that investment.
1: Once we've gone past kind of the childhood phase, we then go into teenage phase. What exactly is is it what what does it mean to be a teenager is this something we've just kind of culturally invented
0: i think i think this is um especially for people who are parents or were parents of teenagers the question why teenagers exist is a fundamental one but it's 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 a really interesting it's a really interesting topic and i think what a lot of people be fascinated to know is that um humans are not the only species that have teenagers so if you think of teenagers as, well, critters that are essentially probably physically, almost physically mature, capable of reproducing, sort of almost an adult size, almost adult sort of hormones and things, but not socially mature. And if you if you think about adolescence as this long, bright tea time of the soul, where, you know, the most important things for um, teenage animals are basically learning... Social skills and learning how to, and sort of transmitting those social skills among their peers. So, for instance, gorillas also have teenage groups, they have essentially boy bands. Gorillas have a very competitive social world. So, um, you know, you think of a silverback and his harem, that's the sort of gorilla social structure. And so, for young gorilla males, if they stay around while they're sort of getting bigger, it can cause a lot of friction, it can cause competition. So, sometimes these males and then maybe a handful of older males who are no longer sort of competing or um, have been outcompeted, competed uh, will form these, these sort of gorilla boy bands from, you know, the, the gorilla sort of teenage age of about, you know, 10 or something for five ish years. And they'll have this adolescence. And this is something that primates seem to spend this time in adolescence where they they essentially navigate new social groups if they're moving. So in a lot of species, males, for instance, move groups or females might move groups. And they also spend a lot of time transmitting and learning new skills from their peers. So teenagers teach each other things um, and they take these things to new groups. And I think it's really interesting that humans... Seem to have not only given ourselves, you know, until age 18 or something, but for a lot of, for a lot of us who did not hit accepted adult milestones and lived fairly adolescent existences, you know, either doing advanced degrees, in my case, or, you know, otherwise training or just not quite being able to contribute to um, the tax man in the way they wish to. You know, that uh, this has now extended an, an at least 10 years in some cases and maybe far beyond. I'm sure there are people out there who would have they say, you know what, I'm 60 and I'm pretty sure I'm not grown up.
1: Would you say that what it means to be a, an adolescent is changing over time? Is it getting longer or
0: shorter? I think that, so. This is a really interesting question, and I think it's one that we can look at actually through um, even more recent examples and kind of human history. So we can look at how people have been adolescents in sort of you know even in you know recent changing societies, and if we think that human evolution is you know set up to help us be whoever we need to be for the society that we live in and it changes the way we play it also changes the way that we essentially train and learn and in societies at least sense we've been able to separate the haves from the have nots we have been able to see that some children get a much longer opportunity to be in that state of being invested in Rather than having to return that investment. And that's something that we can see all the way from wealthy Akkadian parents sending their children to Sumerian scribe school 5,000, 4,000 years ago, so 4,000 years ago. If, you know, it's like, it's like sending your kid to learn Latin. It'll get you a good job. I'm not sure it will. Um, it did 4,000 years ago to, um, you know, we have evidence of, you know, from, again, I studied the, bones and teeth from the past, so we have evidence of um, skeletons from places like Hallstatt in Austria, where we can see, you know, children who who died very young, whose bodies are very, very overworked from having to work in salt mines 2,000 years ago. We have had, for some children, the opportunity to extend adolescence for a very long time, but we haven't given it to everyone.
1: Just finally, what three things do you think we all should know about human childhood?
0: Well, I think um, first, we should definitely know that it's very, very long. And um, should you be one of my parents listening to this, it is totally acceptable if I need to come home and stay in the basement for a little while. On a very serious note, we really do have an incredible portion of time dedicated to investing in our children. And that's something that's, that's pretty astonishing. I think secondly, we should also note that we are some of the only species on the planet that actually finds another way to invest in our children. And we cut off reproduction for older women. Other species don't do this. Grandmas are totally suspicious, not even reasonable. No other species lets women sort of stop reproductive cycling. And we think that maybe one of the reasons that we have grandmas is essentially because uh, grandma is able to invest two generations down. If she doesn't have any new children of her own, she's not worried about them. She's able to basically extend even more investment into our needy, needy babies. And then three, uh, the thing that I really hope people get interested in is of course um the science of paleoanthropology and how we find this out so we are able to do incredible things people are sticking teeth in synchrotrons people are chopping them up and we can actually trace how we started to get these slow childhoods through different fossil species from Australopithecus africanus to Homo erectus to ourselves today. And I think that this is a fascinating science and everyone should be paying attention to see basically what we find out next.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of Instant Genius. That was Dr. Brenna Hassid. If you want to know more about the evolution of human childhood, check out her book, Growing Up Human. Or, to hear her tell me more about childhood in the animal kingdom, head over to Instant Genius Extra, available only on Apple Podcasts. The July issue of BBC Science Focus magazine is out now. Pick up a copy in store or visit sciencefocus.com.